Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. A lot's been said about the trajectory of Pete Buttigieg, the first openly gay candidate to run for president, from small-town mayor to top-tier contender. But there was a related story, and that was the emergence of Pete's husband, Chaston, as perhaps the most followed spouse on social media. His often witty, very human observations made him a star. And now Chaston, a teacher on hiatus, has written a memoir called I Have Something to Tell You about his own journey and a spouse's life on the campaign trail. I sat down with Chaston Buttigieg earlier this week. Here's that conversation. Chaston, of all the candidate spouses, I think you sparked the greatest interest and following, certainly on on social media. Um, Were you surprised by that? Were you surprised to find yourself, you know, Six months earlier, you're a classroom teacher, and now you're like a social media figure. I was surprised. Yeah, I, I uh, often I sort of felt like an imposter in that in that arena. I didn't really feel like I was supposed to be there, and I was surprised that people were paying attention and wanted to hear uh, what I had to say. Some of it is your style, which is funny and personal, but a lot of it is your own story. So I want to ask you about that. So tell me about the Glesmans. You're you're you come from a a. a a kind of typical working class family from the Upper yeah. Peninsula of Michigan. Tell me how they got there. My grandfather's family uh, is from the UP. My family lives in northern lower Michigan. Uh, so they all call us trolls because we live south of the bridge. Uh, uh-huh. But they're, uh, they're a very insular, dedicated family. Uh, grew up with, you know, family reunions every summer. Uh, family is um, deep into tradition, um, a religious family. Um, and it, for a while there, it was quite rare for anyone to leave home. Uh, and most of our family still lives up here in Traverse city. Um, but yeah, my, my mother's, uh, father found his way back to Traverse city cause he worked in the coast guard and this is where the family settled down. And, and where did your mom's family come from? That's my mom's family. Oh, so, that's your mom's uh, family. Yeah. Your dad's family. I don't know too much about my dad's family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he had one grandmother who was Polish. Um, I think there's some French Canadian in there on my mom's side. I've always wanted to do one of those. Uh, it was like a 23 and me or whatever yeah. to see what it would say, but uh, <laughs> I've never gotten around to it. It's easier on Pete's side. It's just uh, Maltese. <laughs> yeah, we we know where they're from. Yeah, your dad grew up struggling. You know, his family yeah. uh, struggled. You explain why you have you have a GIF tattoo on your arm jiff peanut butter logo explain why that is yeah without the lettering so sometimes people think it's just a flag Um, (laughs) 
but there's this story uh, uh, that my, my, my dad loved to tell. Uh, anytime, you know, we were complaining, if we didn't have something, my dad would tell us about how he used to live off Jif peanut butter. He emancipated himself when he was when he was quite young. He left home. He was um, flipping burgers at a local diner. Um, he didn't have transportation, so he was walking across town um, to school and then to work and then late at night and uh, fed himself, you know, on peanut butter sandwiches a lot. And so my dad always told us that if you could afford Jif peanut butter, not store brand peanut butter, that you were doing just fine in life. And so we ate Jif peanut butter a lot growing up. And in college, you know, I'd lament about uh, living on a tight budget. And he'd ask me if I had Jif peanut butter on the shelf. <laughs> uh, and it was just a good constant reminder to be grateful for the things that you have. Uh, and so I, I thought I would go for that. Now, he he ran a, a, a landscaping uh, business in town. And the way you describe him is a sort of a tough love kind of guy. You yeah. you have this amazing uh, anecdote about uh, you you guys would go fishing by the time when he left you yeah. alone at a in, at a fishing yeah. spot said he'd be back and then went across the lake and never came back and just watched <laughs> to see how you would handle the adversity of him not returning. Yeah, that's I mean dad's sort of as a as a mama bird mama kept or my mom kept me very close but as a my dad you know he just kicked us out of the nest to see if we could fly and uh uh when we would go up north and go camping he would uh test me and see what i was capable of doing and luckily i passed that test you know i, I built myself a fire and uh waited around and uh that was just sort of how dad saw um you know imparting lessons on us that we were going to learn the hard way and we, and we usually, you know, we only got one try to learn it too. Um, so it was a lot of, there was a lot of tough love, but he's a very quiet person, but he loves, he loves joking and he loves um, playing tricks on us. Um, that's why I write about how it's, it's so rare to hear him laugh, but when he does, it's, you know, it just fills a room and it's so special because he does have this sort of gruff, quiet demeanor to him. Um, but, you know, beneath that facade, he's got a really big heart. Your mom, Sherry, was it, she was a nursing assistant. And then mm -hmm. she helped out. Uh, she uh, helped out on the landscaping because I guess you almost have done that, huh? Yeah. So mom, mom uh, still does the books for the company, and and she was also working at the hospital. So she was juggling two jobs at a time. And my dad, you know, had all of his work in the landscaping business, and then also he's notorious for you know fixing broken lawnmowers and snow plowing and just doing all these odd jobs. And you know, when you're raising three kids, uh, he needed to to bring in as much as he could. And uh, uh, just a really, really hardworking family. He's still, he's still out there. He's um, still building retaining walls and putting in lawns. And for those of the for our listeners who are looking for help, <laughs> yeah, you, you should know. Now, it used to be a big business. Now it's you know him, and I think he's got two guys working with him. Is sort of dialing down the business, but he's he's just so well known around here as a hard worker. And it was pretty special growing up in that sort of environment where he imparted those lessons on us from a very young age. But, you know, Traverse City is also, you know, a it's culturally conservative. It's politically conservative. You talked about sort of being thrown out to, to survive uh, mm -hmm. in the woods. But you you had a different survival story uh, yeah. as well. And that's part of what makes your book so poignant and so powerful. Um, you know, you, it was your uh, awakening of your own sexual, uh, identity and, and, mm -hmm. and, 
and that that happened over time but you write about feeling different uh from a you know relatively early time of in, in your life mm-hmm. um describe describe what that experience was like i felt different in so many uh ways i uh, talk about sort of the the classism in traverse city grew up on the outskirts of town the elementary school i went to was regarded as the trailer trash school and i remember feeling um confused about why kids said those types of things you know we didn't live downtown we lived outside of the city and um i was at you know in a lot of different programs where i was in 4-h i was on the bowling team i was in theater uh and and most of the groups i belonged to i just felt like i didn't fit in um especially when you know as, as a 4-h kid going to the county fair you're showing your steers kind of a gruff uh, setting. And, uh, I just sort of always felt like an imposter that I didn't one feel like I could be my authentic and true self. Because if I were to tell people that, as I describe in the book, I was convinced I'd lose everything if, you know, not something worse. And there were reasons, there were, there were reasons to fear that at that time, you grew up in the era of the Matthew Shepard, uh, nightmare tortured and, and killed in, uh, Wyoming, and that was yeah. a story that got national attention. A weird time in our history because culturally, gay people were were sort of mainstream. You know, Will and Grace, and uh, yeah. you write about this, and Ellen, and in towns like yours, uh, not so much. Yeah, it felt like you could be gay on television, like you could be gay and pretend you could go to Hollywood and and be gay on TV, and the, you know, watching my my mom laugh at Ellen or my family be okay with watching Will and Grace was a glimmer of hope. But then when I learned about Matthew Shepard's torture, it seemed so plausible that, you know, one of these guys driving around town, I mean, people still drive around Traverse City with Confederate flags waving from the back of their pickup trucks. And, you know, it, it's really did seem plausible that one of these guys could do something really bad to you, really nasty to you, if they found out who you were. You talk about being bullied, being the subjected to bullying. That also probably compounded your anxiety. Yeah, I think it was just a, such a toxic, you know, the, the toxic masculinity in, in high school uh, was insufferable. And I felt that, you know, everyone was trying to to fit in, be on top. And um, I, I was uh, terrified most days, you know, going to gym class, going to the locker room, walking down the hallways, these, the things kids would say to you, um, not because they probably knew I was gay, but just because those were the slurs that they so often used to try to tear somebody down. But in, in the back of my head, I was thinking, oh, they know this secret about me, you know, and um, do they do they know something that I'm not even ready to to say out loud myself? And then what's going to happen when one of them decides, you know, they're going to take these taunts further? By the way, did you talk to anyone? About, could you talk to anyone about this? No, no. I So I reached out to quite a few friends when I was writing the book just to reflect on our time in high school. And I actually made more friends after high school that I'd gone to school with. We didn't really talk very much in high school, but you know, I wanted to check what their experience was. Cause I think we're all, you know, living in our little bubbles inside bigger bubbles. And I have friends who, who came out after high school and we were, we were pretty close in high school and never talked about it. We never felt safe enough to talk about it. Even in private, would we, would we even name it or, or approach it? Um, so there was there was no mentorship, there was no safe space, there was no club, um, there was no center I could go to. Um, it was all all in my head, um, and the only place that I even felt remotely safe was 
watching people on TV. Yeah, I want to ask you about that because you gravitated to drama, mm-hmm. and I, I want I was wondering, you know, what whether there's any connection not just between what you saw on TV, but just trying to uh, escape to a different kind of place. Yeah. Well, when I, my mom would take me downtown to the Old Town Playhouse and drop me off for theater classes. And when I went there, they encouraged me to be goofy and different and loud and funny and dramatic and flamboyant. And the more creative I was, you know, the more characters I could play, the more I felt free because I could go on stage and in a way perform my own identity. But I was doing it as a character. I was playing pretend and people applauded that. Um, but if I did that at home, you know, that was something to be fearful of uh, and or embarrassed of. Um, but when I went into to drama classes, I just came alive because I felt so safe uh, that I could just, you know, sing and dance and jump around and be goofy. And, and people people liked me for it. I made friends and, you know, my, my teachers uh, appreciated it. And uh, you had a particular teacher, a drama teacher who was a real mentor to you. Yeah, and I wish, you know, I've talked to her about this a bit, too, that I think she could tell. I think she knew in high school, but we didn't even have teachers talking about gay rights in high school. Um, Teachers who I've come to know after the fact uh, who have either come out or um, feel free to be a little bit more vocal about their politics. But Mrs. Bach, my high school theater teacher, would let me hide in the theater. I could eat my lunch in there. Uh, I could come see her when I was having a bad day. It's not that I could ever come to her and tell her I was struggling with my sexual identity or, you know, I was fearful that the, you know, the things the boys were saying in the locker room were um, actually going to cause harm to me, but at least I could hide in there. And she uh, really made a safe space for me. You not only escaped to the theater, but you also escaped to Germany. Yeah. And uh, you went off as an exchange student in, in high school and that's where you really began the process of of coming out of exploring who you were and yeah. and talking about it uh, and you came home and you began to tell your friends but you you write about the dread with which you yeah. uh, thought about uh, telling your family talk about that what was that I ran away to Germany because I just felt like I, I didn't know what else to do I found the scholarship program, I got accepted, and I, and I just ran. I had been studying German in high school, so at least I had that going for me. But when I was there, I made friends who I'd, I just had to tell us that this thing is is brewing inside of me, and it is crushing, and I think it's going to eat me alive, and I, I have to name it. And I've, I finally had friends who, you know, looked at me and said, maybe you're just gay, and that, that's fine. You know, and I, I had never had someone look at me in the eye and say, you're normal, you're it's okay to just be you. And so I came home and started opening up slowly to, to friends, lost some, um, found strength in other friendships, you know, people who affirmed my identity and my worth, which is a, a really a mark of allyship to have not only people in your life who you know love you, but who will say it out loud, who affirm your worth, who say, you're, you know, you're safe with me. I see you. I'll fight like hell for you. Um, and that eventually gave me the courage to write the letter and come out to my parents. I want to talk about your parents in a second, but when you talk about the friends that you lost, were there friends you yeah. lost who you were surprised to have lost? Were there friends who, who whose whose reaction jarred you, devastated you? Yeah, and it, it's, I mean, it sort of seems like it's from a cheesy high school movie, but, you know, friends who say, wow, I, I can't believe you would choose that, you know, or, or say that's, you know, sinful and... um you know, if you make this choice, 
you know, you'll go to hell. And, you know, we, it's a pretty religious place up here. And some of these kids I'd gone to, you know, youth group with or CCD with, and, um, it wasn't uh, as surprising because I felt like I was sort of bracing for it because I, I initially just thought I'd lose everyone. And then when I had friends who I didn't, you know, when you have friends in your corner, everything feels a little bit easier to navigate. So the revelation wasn't the ones you lost, but the ones that you that you kept and strengthened and yeah. gained. Yeah. So you wrote this letter to your mom. Yep. Uh, not to your dad, to your mom. Um, yeah. And sh- and tell me why you wrote a letter rather than. Uh, yeah. I mean, your book is called "I Have Something to Tell You." I assume <laughs> that that is a reference. Yeah. Tell me about that decision, how you approached yeah. it. I was a mama's boy, so I I felt very different from my father, from my brothers. Um, they were kind of, you know, roughneck working on trucks and working out in the yard and doing their thing. And I was inside, you know, performing Celine Dion songs and, and reading. <laughs> so, you know, my mom and I were, that may were have much been a closer clue, than my... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, seriously, <laughs> come on. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think I had the heart to tell my father. And I never felt like my... You know, I never felt like they hated me. I just felt like I was such a disappointment that I was, you know, ruining everything that they had hoped for me. Um, and uh, can I tell you that 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 is profoundly sad to me that a young person should feel that way, should have to feel that way. Yeah. It was a different uh, time. I mean, yeah. they didn't they didn't know anything. They didn't know anything about being gay. What it meant. Um, it truly was a bubble, and I popped it. You know, I, I I handed her the letter and I said, I'm really sorry, I got to go. And I, I took my bags and I left. I didn't even wait for her to read the letter. And I, I just got in my car and I, and I left. And I was so convinced that they would be disappointed in me. They'd be embarrassed of me. They wouldn't want to be associated with me, that I would, it would crush them. Um, so I just ran, not because I felt like they hated me, but because I felt like my parents had fought so hard to give me a good life and they were good people. Um, well-revered in their friend groups and in the community, well-known. And if they were known to be, you know, the, the Glesmans have a, a gay kid, um, what a disappointment that must be to, to their friends, to our community, to my dad's, my dad's business. And, 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 your, and your, brothers kind of, your brothers kind of played into that. You, you, you say that you overheard them say, no brother of mine and so on. It yeah. wasn't an easy, it wasn't an easy time. And, um, you know, at that point, I just, I was so convinced I'd lose it all. Like I said, that, that nothing, nothing really shocked me. But then when I didn't, I was so filled with hope because I, I truly thought I would just lose my family forever. One of the really moving uh, stories is after you left and you spent some time sleeping in the back of your car and elsewhere, Mm -hmm. uh, because you felt like you had, you could not go home. You got a call from your mom. Yeah. She, uh, I remember right where I was, <laughs> some of the most vivid memories I have, um, just of that time when I handed her the letter, what it felt like. And then, uh, when she called me and I, I came right home, I was so tired. I was going to school and I was working full time and everything felt hopeless. And to have my parents welcome me home and, you know, my, my dad saying, uh, you know, I, I love you all the same. And my mom asking these questions saying, you know, one, I don't know why you would choose something so hard. And we had to have the conversation about what is a choice and what isn't. And then behind that was just fear. She was so fearful of what life was going to be like for me. And they knew 
it was going to be hard and they didn't have any answers. And I think that's what was so frightening for them is they had protected me for 18 years and then they had no idea how to protect me. Yeah. I mean, that's such an interesting distinction between shame and fear. And that fear comes from a place of love, yeah. which is, uh, like your mom says, leaving the fact of her thinking that this was a choice aside, uh, she was worried about the obstacles yeah. that would be placed in your way and the the, 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 the menace that, that might be yeah. placed in your way because of who you are. And we had to keep having those conversations. We had to keep coming to the table, you know, saying, I didn't choose this. This is just in me. I was, I was born with this. Why would I choose something hard? Why would I choose, you know, a life of all this vitriol and this hatred? And, and then, you know, that was, that was eye opening to them. Like, oh, of course he didn't choose this. And then, you know, everything that every obstacle that got in my way, I was so lucky to have them by my side, you know, but the thing is I got to run away from this multiple times. I ran away to Germany, came home. I ran away to school, came home. My parents have lived here their entire lives and and they've had to face some of these conversations in their own in their own community and their friend groups and in in our family about dignity and worth and space and trust and love and what truly makes a family and how you really show up for somebody that you love which I think makes them just beautiful allies. I mm-hmm. I love you know last year we walked in the pride parade here in Traverse City together That's the whole family and amazing. And just to see how how proud they were um, and how heartbroken my mom was when she would see other, she would meet other kids who wanted a hug or wanted to talk or had watched her on the campaign trail as well, feeling inspired by parents who were so loving and accepting. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You went off to school in Wisconsin. Ne- mm-hmm. Neither of your parents ever got the chance to go to college. You, you were determined yeah. to do that. You went off, you studied drama. You graduated from the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you went to Milwaukee. And you found this nexus between drama and teaching. Uh, that yeah. was kind of a revelation. Yeah, it was my my real introduction to to teaching. I got, I got a job at a theater academy and started teaching workshops out in Milwaukee public schools and was teaching at the academy and started to realize, I think I have a knack for this. Yeah, what what is it about that that appealed to you? Well, I was having a lot of kids in my classroom who reminded me of myself, who were different, who needed a safe space, who wanted so desperately to, you know, to to be a star and to perform and to live and and laugh and um but they also clearly felt like outcasts and i loved creating that safe space for them i I love i taught third and fourth grade at that time and you know being goofy and loud and encouraging them to find strength in in their talents and their abilities our whole mantra there was life skills through stage skills so you know confidence in ourselves and and standing in front of other people and public speaking and friendship and teamwork and uh in a way, I started to feel like I got to be the teacher I wish I would have had when I was younger. You know, I did this podcast uh, sometime back with Tom Hanks, who, you know, everybody thinks of as sort of the Ozzie Nelson of our times, <laughs> you know, just the, the all-American guy. Yeah. Um, but he had a very difficult childhood. 
um, lots of lots of upheaval in his childhood, and he said the only place that he found community was on the stage with his, you know, that that he he never had a community before that. Yeah, and it's so interesting to hear that, and it's really what you're describing. Yeah, I, I I didn't have therapy. I didn't have anyone to talk to. But when I'd go to the theater, I was so quiet and I wanted to scream all the time, right? And then I'd get up on the stage and they'd say, louder, louder, and, you know, project this. And I could fill an auditorium and I would finally be able to scream and shout and move. And, and it felt in a way that I could just express all these things that were locked up inside me. Not as Chaston, you know, it's probably as like, Mike TV and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or something. But at least <laughs> I was like, I felt alive, you know? But, you know, I, I, I was thinking as I read that training and that experience, and I don't want to jump ahead in the story here because there, there are a couple of chapters before we get there, <laughs> but uh, yeah. that must have been useful when you were thrown into the breach as the spouse of a candidate, yeah. and you had to go and uh, stand on stages all over this country and speak. Uh, mm-hmm. I have to tell you also that I I, I got not, not also to jump ahead, but I, I attended your wedding. Uh, yeah. And I remember the toasts after uh, and I, my wife, Susan, who, you know, well, uh, turning to me and said, that's the guy who should run. He's like, wow. <laughs> so I got that. It's funny. I got two sides of the, that coin that journalists would laugh at me when they'd say, what prepared you for this moment? And I'd say theater. I have a theater degree. And they'd all laugh and snicker. I said, I'm not joking. I feel comfortable being up here. I feel comfortable talking to people. I feel comfortable opening up. Um, I have a way that at least, I don't know, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I felt like I was able to like draw people in and talk to them authentically because I had, I have been comfortable standing in front of people talking and I I knew how to command a room. Um, but then on the same, you know, side, people say, well, you should run. I'm a terrible politician. I don't, (laughs) I don't know, you know, a fraction of the things he knows. You're too indiscreet, man. You say what you think. (laughs) You drive your staffers crazy. I probably did, but I, you know, that, that also was frustrating. He said, you know, this Pete Buttigieg is one of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my lifetime. He's unflappable. He's calm. He's, he's everything that I want to see in a president. He's the person I want sitting behind that desk in the West Wing because of, of those qualities, you don't want me in there. You know, I, (laughs) I can barely pay attention to to anything (laughs) for an hour. Uh, so that was an interesting conversation. Your, uh, relationship began when you were sitting at gate B5 at O'Hare Airport and you were uh, looking at a dating site and up came this profile of, did it say he was the mayor of South Bend, Indiana? It didn't. So, but he was very clever. So he had, you know, the, the military photo. uh, And then he had this photo of him standing behind a podium with his name on it. And people are standing around him, you know, clapping and cheering. Who the hell is this guy? So I had Googled him and then I, I figured it out. And you weren't daunted by that, huh? I was. Uh, you, a lot of people would run away from a, a, a politician. It was like, well, you're cute. But uh, we had a few FaceTime dates uh, before <laughs> I made the drive over. You know, everyone wants to make sure that they're not going on a date with an axe murderer. And um, he was so charming. So I finally made an excuse. I was driving to Michigan, so I swung through South Bend on the way uh, to have a date with him. But I was very put off by the idea that he was a politician. I write about that a lot in the book, did not have a political upbringing, was not interested in politics, um, thought I knew you know, who politicians were and what they were like, and, and he changed my mind. You brought him home, 
you this was in the summer of 2015 when you guys uh started dating mm-hmm. you brought him home at christmas time 2015 what was that like that was terrifying um i was so in love with him and my parents had watched me um get my heart broken one too many times um sometimes by people who didn't deserve to love me and i was very nervous one to just bring someone home um but too nervous because it felt so right and uh you never want something that feels so right to go wrong um they loved him and i loved watching how our families are very different and they're so fascinated with one another he comes from an academic family and yeah uh, different deal yeah so which was uh so sweet to see our parents you know blend so easily um Mm -hmm. joe uh, Peter's father, who's an academic, was so fascinated with dad's work. And dad was so fascinated with Joe's world. And they could talk for hours. And Anne and mom had this shared love for their sons, obviously, but um, just could sit, just watching the four of them in a room, you know, just filled our hearts that this, this family truly felt bigger. And, um, but yeah, anywho, back to back to Christmas morning. It's you know my mom makes homemade cinnamon rolls and she's loud. My mom is loud. She tells jokes and she fills a room and uh, she's full of tricks. And the way Peter just went along with her antics, you know, I was, uh, I was a little nervous, um, but he lets his guard down and he he does really well with all of our goofiness. He's also musical. He could probably jump in on the holiday tunes as well. Oh, they love it because, uh, you know, he plays guitar and piano and he'll, he does the Christmas carols and, uh, the family's so taken with that. (laughs) You know, you, he took you to another, you took him back home. He took you to an event at the white house, uh, that (laughs) you write about. Um, yeah, a little different. Yeah. You found that scene a little daunting so much so (laughs) that you had a kind of awkward exchange with the president of the United States. I had never uh, met the president before. I was completely intimidated by going to the White House. I didn't even own a suit. Um, (laughs) I had to go buy nice clothes. You had like, uh, what, $70,000 worth of student loans. So there's, you have every reason not to own a suit. You had other expenses. I just, oh, the whole flight there and, um, you know, standing in line and I got put in the, whatever they call it, you know, the, timeout bin when you're trying to get into the white house and yes. something comes up on your driver's license every time <laughs> every time I've, i think i've been twice but uh you know so like oh crap now i'm not even going to get in there i'm not even going to meet them and then we met them and i had awkwardly long story long i guess accidentally pulled barack obama's finger because i <laughs> uh recoiled when he shook my hand someone bumped into me and i was so embarrassed and then i grabbed onto his finger and and you know that may be a it. federal offense by the way I'm probably sure. i'm surprised i didn't get tackled you know and he's looking at me like what the hell are you doing and uh and i said merry christmas and then michelle came and i was about ready to cry uh <laughs> pete was like what happened i was like i think i pulled his finger and like this is why you don't bring me places you know i'm such an embarrassment and uh but yeah just going on a going on a date to the white house was um you know it's like is this really is this what life was going to be like with this guy? And um, to be honest, and I write about this in the book, I, I didn't think that people like me were supposed to be in rooms like that. And I felt like uh, an imposter um, that surely, you know, at some point someone's going to figure out that I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. 
<laughs> well, I suspect there are a lot of people in, in those rooms that secretly feel that way. But um, the um, uh, y- you guys got married in 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I-, I remember the scene. It was really a public event. <laughs> and here we were in this um, in this. Uh, you know, middle American city, South Bend, home to Notre Dame University. And the mayor was marrying his husband and it was, um, it was streamed and there were, there were cameras were outside. And did you, it was, I mean, to, I can only speak from my perspective, which is uh, different than yours, but it was head spinning to think about how fast things had changed in this country from the time when you were a teenager watching Will and Grace, but yeah. feeling terrified in your own town uh, to a point where you guys could have this very public and joyful wedding. Yeah. Yeah. It, it happened really fast. And, and for a long time, I felt like I would never experience that joy. I would never experience the rush of, you know, the, the, chapel doors opening and coming out to your friends and family cheering and um and jumping in your studebaker and heading off to the gay pride parade yeah yeah we just felt such a responsibility to to make it a thing for our community it was a really big deal and that's why we live streamed the wedding because so many people wanted to play a part in that day and and so uh it, it in a way, it felt like we had a responsibility to to do right by that moment. This sort of the same weight I felt during the campaign that this is bigger than us, um, and I wanted to get it right. Um, that day was a blur. In a way, I, I always want to give people the wedding advice that you know, do whatever the hell you want. Don't worry about what other people think. It's an yeah. expensive day. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I'm so glad we did share it with so many people, and we gave people so much access to the wedding yeah. because. It was also a celebration for our community, South Bend, for Indiana. Yeah. For It know. was a lovely day and so uh, meaningful in Indiana where the struggles had been so pronounced over. And they still are. And yeah. I hope that people saw that just as a, a glimmer of hope in the direction that we're taking things. Now, you got a master's degree. You worked uh, and got a master's degree at the same time at DePaul University in Education, and you were teaching uh, at a Montessori school, obviously yeah. loved teaching. Mm-hmm. And then a year into your marriage, uh, your husband presented you with the notion that he might run for president <laughs> of the United States. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that. Uh, that must have dropped like quite a stunning bit of news yeah. in the middle of your new newly uh you know yeah. your, your newly uh minted uh marriage yeah it 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 developed so quickly too you know a few months after we were getting married people were you know approaching us asking us to consider this and i and i had initially just said sure you know why not i don't know what running for president's like and so i was like well i love you i think you'd make a great president go for it you know like i <laughs> Uh, you know, like he's if you had known, would play. you? If you had known what it was like, would you still have been uh, as uh, casual about the advice? Had I known what I know now, I I would have been able to prepare in different ways. Had I known now, I I probably would have thought about it much longer. Yeah, you know, I remember sitting down with uh, Senator Obama when he was thinking about running, and I said, you know, um, you'd need to know that 
you know, my, my concern for you is not that you're going to lose, it's that you're going to win and that your life is going to change in ways you can yeah. never get back. Uh, the other thing that I remember clearly is the sacrifice that Michelle Obama made because yeah. she had a very, very good life that she had established for herself as a professional. Yeah. She had a circle of friends. Their understanding was always politics is your life. I've got my life and we'll come together around the family. Yeah. And then um, uh, all of a sudden this happens and you're like a conscript. You you know, you, you know she clearly believed in Barack, but. Uh, and was in, but uh, it wasn't. It wasn't easy to give up everything. And it struck me that you you gave up your life too. You you had to stop teaching, and um, you know that that's a sacrifice people don't appreciate. Yeah, it's funny. I've um, well, it's one reason I wrote the book because I want people to get to know me for me. Yes, and uh, I've shared a lot of those feelings. I think a little, maybe too candidly, but you know what it truly feels like to be a politician spouse. And um, I did not know what it would, what it would do uh, to my family, my friendships, my marriage, um, the pressure you would feel every day. I think it in the end has pushed us closer together, but when you're in the thick of it and you're, it feels like you're in the middle of a blender and just everything is gushing and rushing around you. It, um, had I known all of those feelings and those stresses, I would have paused before I said, sure, go for it. Um, Cause I, I was excited to go out there and hopefully inspire people and talk to people about why I left my husband and, and dream big and think about this future for our country. I did not expect to have to go out there and defend my worth um, and to ask other people to look at other Americans with dignity and to protect my family and my friendships and my home you know, and my data and like all of these invasive attacks that you go through is uh, alarming. But in the end, I think it was totally worth it. Mm -hmm. But had I known all of those things when I was folding laundry and he said, what do you think about this? You know, I probably wouldn't have just said, oh, sure, go for it. Like he's running out to get milk, you know. I don't think he'd be angry at me for betraying a, a, a confidence. But early on, when he started taking off in the campaign, uh, he dropped by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. And I remember part of the conversation was how much he was concerned about what the implications would be for for you guys as a as a couple. Uh, yeah. And it was because because it was the thing that he valued the most. And um, I, I was really moved. We had a good conversation about that. Um, but I, let me just ask you, go back just a couple of notches and ask you that, because you started dating just a few months after uh, Mayor Pete came out, publicly came yeah. out. Um, and he was quite a bit older than you were when when you came out. And what often comes up is this question of, like, how do you how do you how do you keep that inside so long? How do you navigate yeah. that? That must have been awfully difficult. And I hope he writes about that someday. And that's something a lot of people want to talk about, and that's not my story to tell. But what I do, you know, I did that for 18 years. I was so focused on not being myself and not letting anybody figure out who I was that I poured myself into academics and I poured myself into extracurriculars and I did everything. And I worked two jobs in high school and I, I just tried my best to avoid um, confronting who I was. Um, but then I felt like it was going to eat me alive. So I came out and 
I think people are so used to the idea that the trauma of living your life in the closet and coming out only looks a certain way. And the sad part is, I mean, our stories are very different, right? I came out, the road got much bumpier. I stumbled going through college and I worked all these odd jobs and I couldn't really figure out who I was. And I, I had all of these experiences. And that trauma looks different and those experiences look different than somebody who's so convinced that he will lose everything and he'll never be able to aspire to the things and the dreams that he has for himself, that he pushes himself so far deep into the closet that he, you know, goes into the military and he gets the consulting job and he works on the campaigns and he goes and he goes and he builds and he builds because he feels like that is the only way that he will succeed and, and find joy. And then he realized in all of it, there wasn't love. And for me, I was so focused on love that I felt like I'm, I'm going to lose it all. Um, and, you know, we just went down two paths that eventually wound up meeting one another. Um, and I I don't know, I feel like there's a lot of uh, questions behind questions when people ask about Pete's experience. For me, it, it felt it felt like it was going to be the thing that ended me. And I think for him, it's the thing that propelled him to to just keep busy. Mm -hmm. um, but that's his story and I don't, and maybe that maybe I'm wrong, but I, I hope he in time tells that. Well, he, he, and there'll be interest in that because he's become a historic figure. Yeah. Um, you know, when, the, when you chart the social history of our country, his yeah. candidacy for president, uh, will be a, a milestone, uh, along the way because he started off as the, uh, little known mayor of a small city. <laughs> And wound up as a front, uh, a top tier contender. So much so that uh, he was uh, on the night of the Iowa caucuses. He was in a real position to uh, take control of the race. He ended up winning the Iowa caucuses, but not that night. At least not right. in the official way. And so, and you write about this, and you talk about this. He didn't get the bounce the bounce that one often gets out of Iowa, that Barack Obama got out of Iowa yeah. and and then narrowly lost in New Hampshire, came in second to Bernie Sanders. Right. Had he come in first, we don't know how this story uh, would have ended. You know, Hubert Humphrey right. used to say the only that, that the biggest clubs in the world are the would have club and the should have club and neither are <laughs> worth belonging to. Uh, but uh, I'm sure you must you, you, you wrote you, you talk about you write about you. You look back at that and say, what if? Yeah, absolutely. That it's one thing to think like, oh, wow, my husband could have been, you know, the candidate. To be honest, one of the things that really pissed me off was the we could have had that that moment, not for us for the country. We could have had that moment that night of Iowa that, you know, the first openly gay presidential candidate wins a state that night. Kids sitting in front of their TV see it, you know, mm -hmm. sitting in the middle of nowhere wondering if this country is truly going to become the place they want it to be. That if our is our country really going to move forward? Are we really going to do this together? And instead, they all went to bed wondering. And by the time it mattered, nobody was paying attention because we were on to the next state. And that just to think about what it would have been like to be 13 year old chest and sitting up, you know, watching the results and thinking like, I'm not ready to tell my family. I don't know, you know, this thing inside of me that's terrifying, but then to see, you know, this gay man on television with his husband celebrating this victory. And in a way it felt, I mean, we had all that internal data, you know, and we went out on that stage and it felt, it felt great but it was lacking that that moment. And I yeah. was so mad, not for us, but for every person in this country who really had their hopes riding on that moment. Yeah.
Yeah. And uh, no, I listen, I remember the impact that Obama's uh, victories and his his candidacy than his victories had uh, for so many young uh, people of color who yeah. never imagined that that could happen. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. The thing took off like a rocket and ended abruptly, <laughs> which, which is how yeah. presidential campaigns work. At some point, you realize <laughs> it's not there. <laughs> it's not yeah. there. Um, yeah. Tell me about that, you know, because I've experienced this. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the idea of going like 200 miles an hour and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you're sitting in your living room and it's yeah. over. Um, was that we were, uh, was that a hard adjustment? A little bit. I don't want to give too much away in the book, but uh, you know, I think we were at like a Hampton Inn or something, America's Best Valley Inn, or wherever we were in America's Georgia, getting ready to meet the um, Carters. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, it was very clear that the the math just wasn't going to be there after South Carolina. And you said, "Let's remember, go home." I just said, "Let's go home." And I remember feeling like the moment I let those words escape my lips, I might break my husband's heart. Um, But we both kind of just collapsed. Um, He was sitting at the desk kind of pouring over work. And I I just walked over to the desk and I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, I think we should go home. Let's just go home. And I, the look on his face when I knew that that was the decision he was going to make, I felt so bad because he had done so well Mm -hmm. and he was so close and I desperately wanted that for him and, and for the country. But then the thought of going home, uh, I just couldn't wait to get back on the plane. I I wanted to go home and then, then we went into quarantine, right? So then it's kind of comical. We planned these vacations and they all got canceled. We go into quarantine, COVID takes off. And now we're, you know, literally in the living room, Every day, making three meals together a day, which was a great way to unwind and (laughs) and come back to one another. But yeah, we we were, you know, two ships in the night flying past one another, zigzagging across the country, seeing each other, you know, two, three days a week. And then, bam, it's done. In my own experience, there is a psychologically the letdown is hard. It's hard. You know, you're looking at your phone and it's like, where are all the emails? Where are all the texts? (laughs) The schedule's literally empty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a tough adjustment. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me, the, the the other thing that strikes me is he's a young man. You, you're mm-hmm. an even younger man. Uh, you have much of your lives ahead of you, uh, and including the potentially more hills to climb in, in, in politics. But right now, you just wrote a book. He's written a book that will come out soon. But you're kind of on hold, aren't you? Yeah, and that's sort of been the the hard adjustment is that I'm not back in the classroom. And um, when the campaign ended, it was like, oh, I can't just go back. I can't just go back to my kids. Um, you know, I had the book project for, for over a year and I was happy to wrap that up. And then, you know, what's next? And uh, we're, we're doing a bunch of work for Biden and, 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 you know, fighting like hell to make sure that that's, that's the right choice America makes this fall. But beyond that, 
the the possibility is a, a bit overwhelming and that's such a privilege. I mean, we, we talked about starting a family and then the campaign took off and now we kind of get to sit here and, you know, revisit those dreams. Having a family in the middle yeah. of a, having young children in the middle of a campaign <laughs> is, is brutal, uh, impossible. We knew we had to delay that one. I want to get back to the, to the future. Back to the Future, that should be a movie. But anyway, <laughs> I, I want to get back to the future in a second. But uh, from the campaign, one, one, you've been speaking lately about uh, Kamala Harris and, and her husband, uh, Doug yeah. uh, Emhoff, and, and you speak very highly of them as people. They, they, you, you got to commune with all the candidates' spouses mm-hmm. and the candidates. And uh, tell me what, was, uh, what struck you about them. I guess what's striking is I didn't get to commune with all of them because not everyone not not everyone was interested in a conversation or or, or warmth. But uh, Doug was, uh, Jill was. Um, I remember the first debate. I walked into the room and I just was so intimidated that you know it's his first debate. I want him to do really well, and then there's all these spouses there lined up in the front row, and I <laughs> make this joke. It kind of felt like an episode of Dance Moms where everyone's like there to like you know fight for their kid uh, and has like no time for anybody else. And um, Jill Biden jumped up right away and she recognized me and introduced herself. She was sitting next to Doug. Doug stood up, introduced himself, very kind. And then, um, you know, a few events of running into Doug later, we swapped phone numbers and it was really nice to actually talk to somebody who was going through something similar. You can rely on your friends and family to talk about this crazy thing you're going through, but to talk yeah. to Doug genuinely. It's like about, to know other astronauts. It's just like, it's such a weird experience. And, to find warmth in other people, even though you're competing against them, um, was surprising. I, I wasn't sure that everyone would be, you know, as warm and welcoming um, as they were. And uh, Dr. Biden is such a, she's such a force. And she has this mm-hmm. sort of people, you know, gravitate to her. She's um, so kind. And Doug is really, Fellow goofy, teacher. which I really love. Yes. Like, well, we're good people, you know. And <laughs> the thing I loved about Doug is he's just a, a chill dude you know we're out on the trail and we're out there speaking about our spouses but then we can talk about other things and he's you know he's not a politician he's doing his thing because he loves his wife and um you could always feel that come across this that that genuine when there were moments in the campaign where uh pete had tense exchanges with one of his opponents on the stage how does that play (laughs) when you're sitting there with their spouses in the spouse pen in the front of the room, do you shoot each other cross looks or do you uh, give each no, other the finger or what they, do you do? <laughs> if you want to see the real drama, pan the camera to the spouse sex where everyone's just sitting there like tense, you know? Like, yeah. Um, no, Doug and I used to text each other emojis during debates. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, sometimes she'd say something that was great. Sometimes Pete would land a line and uh, we were very supportive of one another. Uh uh, Dr. B didn't text me during the debate, but you know, we would, we were, it was so funny to be able to just find common ground. And there was this unspoken rule. Like, I don't want to talk about this, you know, like, I don't want to talk about what's happening up on stage. And I really don't want to talk about politics. And I really appreciated that, uh, you know, Jane Sanders figured that out pretty early on that. I just, I didn't want to go into punditry. And so we just talked about families and vacations and, you know, fixing up homes and, um, whatever, you know, small talk. And I appreciate that people could just leave it alone. You know, like we don't need to get into all that. And, uh, there's, you know, for most people, a genuine sense of camaraderie, uh, 
But sure, there were some tense moments where, especially as a spouse, you know, I'm not a politician. So like I have some thoughts and I have some words, um, but it's best to keep those locked up inside and smile. <laughs> Do you feel better or worse about politics having gone through this experience? Well, I feel much better because I was able to go out and I guess do politics. You know, I was meeting thousands of people a day. I was, you know, I had my own team and schedule and, and agenda. We were out there touring schools and LGBTQ centers and homeless service providers, arts organizations, a lot mm-hmm. of things that I talked about wanting to champion from the East Wing. And I was just out there doing the work every day. And when you get to meet all those people, right? And look at them in the face and talk about this this idea, this idea of belonging and inclusion and a more hopeful future in politics. It felt a lot better than just sitting at home, you know, scrolling through Twitter and lamenting about the world. Yeah. I think that is missed, that people are good. People are inspiring. There are so many yeah. inspiring people in this country who um, live by admirable values, care about each other, yeah. care about their communities. Uh, they get lost sometimes in the discussion. It's easy to be cynical online. And then I, you know, go meet this theater teacher in the middle of nowhere, Iowa, who's operating, you know, a, a theater troupe, but it's also sort of the underground LGBTQ center because it's where all these kids are coming for a safe space. And she's doing that out of her own pocket on her own time. Um, just to provide a safe space for kids and meet people like her all over the country who are actually doing the work. They're not, you know, sitting on Twitter and watching the world burn. They're they're out there rolling up their sleeves and and doing things. And uh, I got to spend it all day with them, and it uh, it it made me more hopeful for what we could actually get done together as a country. The other side of the coin is that um, you know you heard chatter when Pete was doing so well that gee he's great he's very you know, he's incredible on the stump, he's inspiring, he's thoughtful. But if he gets nominated, there are going to be all these pictures of him, uh, you know, kissing his husband and all of that. And that's going to be a problem culturally uh, for us politically. I mean, obviously, you heard that chatter, too. Yeah, but I never heard that chatter about the straight people. Mm -hmm. It's so funny to say, you know, hear people say, oh, he's out there kissing his husband on stage. Like, it's a thing that nobody does. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. All the straight politicians are up there hugging and kissing and waving. And I had never thought about that. When we, at the launch, we didn't even talk about it. We, it was just like, uh, you know, I'll come out. We had talked about I'll approach from the left, right? But then it, in the moment, it's like I was so proud. I, I, I gave him a kiss on the cheek, and that blew up. And then, you know, at some events, I just instinctively would would kiss him or yeah you know put my arm around him and, and it, i would find it in the news like it was something remarkable and and unseen and i just thought i'm not gonna police myself and change myself so you know to protect some people's opinions that this is just who i am and it is a measure of the progress that we have yet to make because you yeah. know family values needs to include all families and we should celebrate wholesome supportive relationships between spouses you know but it was weird to have people on you know people on one side say like um they're not enough they're not doing enough they're not doing enough for this moment and then we we would meet other gay people at events who would who would pull me in and say stop kissing him on stage or you know um when you go up on stage to say hi to him you shouldn't put your arm around him or you shouldn't you know, give him a peck on the cheek. But gay people who were confused or not confused, concerned 
that we were going to be too gay for the moment. And so you're getting a bunch of input from every different angle telling you exactly who to be and how to be. And so at the end of the day, kind of just push it all away and say, I'm just going to do this as me, take it or leave it. So let me just finish by going back to the future, as I promised. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of speculation that if if Biden wins, that uh, he will offer uh, some significant position to Pete in his administration. So that's what I meant by your lives being on hold. You really don't have any idea where you're going to be a year from now. Yeah, kind of just waiting to see uh, uh, what happens with um, with Pete. And at the end of the day, I want him to be happy because Pete is so he's so alive when he's, you know, thinking big thoughts and he's working on solving mm-hmm. hard problems and he's, you know, pouring himself into things like he did on the campaign trail. I would love to just see him happy doing something like that. Um, and then beyond that, you know, right now we we also have the privilege of spending more time just planning what we want the future to look like. And so having a lot of baby talks and, you know, things like that, that we haven't had the, uh, the opportunity to entertain. Uh, but yeah, kind of sitting here thinking, what do I want to do? What do I want to contribute to? I, I would love to find a way to keep teaching or, or do something that, you know, makes me feel um, like I'm contributing to something bigger, like I did on the campaign trail, whether it's, you know, something in the arts or education or the idea of inclusion and belonging. I just want to make sure I'm using this platform for good and I'm just trying to get it right. Well, let me say, uh, Chastin, that uh, this book, I Have Something to Tell You, is already a great contribution. And I really urge people to read it because it's, as you can tell, you're funny, you're thoughtful, uh, and uh, it's 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 really an important story uh, that goes well beyond the fact that you're married to a presidential candidate, your own journey is uh, instructive and worthy of uh, uh, of reflection. Um, there's a lot there. So I appreciate that. I'm really glad we had the opportunity to talk about it. I, uh, you know, in a way, wanted it to be a book that I wish I would have had when I was younger. And sure, it's, it's not necessarily there to do the work of my husband. It's uh, it's just that's just who I am. I'm really glad that you appreciated it. Well, others will as well. Great to be with you, my friend. Hey, good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.